0: Welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Foswa, and to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness in the context of conversations around race and racism, and as the structure pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture, what does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into these questions and many more. Today, I'm joined by an author whose incredible backstory informs the work that he does today. Hamid Amiri fled Afghanistan as a child seeking refuge in the UK and as an adult, He has dedicated much of his work to raising awareness around the plight of refugees and fulfilling his promise to his late brother to share their story. Hamid is the author of the recently published autobiographical book, The Boy With Two Hearts, which is partly a homage to his late brother and his family, but also to the UK NHS, the UK National Health Service, which provided Hamid's brother with vital treatment. The book was featured on BBC Radio 4's Book of the Week and has since been turned into a play which recently opened in Cardiff, Wales. Currently working as a senior leader in the tech sector while influencer in the education sector, Hamid has become something of a role model to many of his peers. Today he's working to make good on a promise to his late brother to share their story. Hamid, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me and that amazing, amazing intro.
0: Thank you so much. First of all, congratulations on uh, the opening of the play uh, in Cardiff. I'm sorry I wasn't able to make it, but I've heard great, heard and read great things indeed. I saw you had some fantastic reviews. Um, how was it? How was the play received?
1: Uh, unreal, unreal. So I never expected me writing a story, which we'll get into, and, and the purpose behind it to not only be published, but to be on a stage and not a, a prestigious stage, such as Wales Millennium Centre. And I walked in most nights, I actually attended most nights, and full house, standing ovation, and I get a chance to relive moments with my full family and the emotions we went to together. So for me, it was unreal. And I feel blessed, grateful, humbled, uh, all of those emotions in, in, in one go.
0: And what were you hoping that people attending the play would take away from it?
1: Good question. A uh, few different things. I'd probably say. The, ween- the meaning behind the word refugee, you know, it's ev- everyone's got a story. Everyone's got a reason A refugee isn't a title I've chosen. He was given to me. So it's to have an insight of what that, what that is, what that journey looks like. But also, uh, I think I want people to see and know the value of family. You know, for us, me, my mum and dad and my two brothers older and one younger. You see that on a stage. You see that for you know an hour and a half, two hours where we stuck together through thick and thin and it got us to where it got to. And I think I want people to walk away from the play. And I think they did to. Realise we we're here in this world for a short amount of time that could be Five, 10, 50 years so let's enjoy it let's be kind let's value our family and our loved ones let's just live our life to the fullest that was the purpose of me to get off the stage
0: mm. and and what does that word refugee mean to you is it a word that you identify with
1: I think for me it's a it's a word that's given to me and not chosen by myself you know and the best way I can describe it and Again, we'll go into it the past few weeks, obviously, what's happened recently in the news. For me, it's the last resort. For me, it's safety. For me, it's a a route you don't want to take, but you're forced to take and you have to take, like my parents did, because of their safety, because of my older brother. And if they didn't, in reality, my mum wouldn't have lived and my my brother wouldn't have lived as long as he did. That's the reality of it for me.
0: And how do you think um, what how would you define the sort of public perception of the word refugee because I'm sure you must have a, um, a a really specific insight on that given that it's a it's a label that we hear bandied around and not usually in a highly positive way but it's one that's then ascribed to you
1: The best way I can describe it um, people think the journey isn't as scary and painful and long uh, and an unknown journey and um, the perception refugee is they want to leave their comfortable home back home make this easy journey you know in the in the suitcase and be in uk and go on benefits and and I'll take jobs and etc um that's the that's the perception that's been created and i think stories like mine and others is trying to break that perception and, and give a re- a reality sense of actually what that journey looks like and how long it is and the risk test comes with it
0: So let's talk about the journey if we can. Um, I know of course that you were uh, 10 years old and uh, living with your parents when uh, your mother delivered a a powerful speech demanding greater rights uh, for women, that was in 2000, Um, and her demands I understand angered the local Taliban leaders Uh, and just days later a warrant uh, I gather was issued for her execution. Tell us um, about what you remember of those last few days uh, in Afghanistan that led you to have to take on this momentous journey.
1: Um, I remember vividly and it's a a blessing and a curse that I'm very visual and I remember details because it's a good thing I remember, it's a bad thing because obviously it stays with you. For me, um, mum always wanted a daughter and she had three boys and all of us. Uh, naughty and and painful in different ways. And she mentored the younger generation, especially the younger girls, you know, told them about life skills, told them about chase your dreams. My mum designed her own wedding dress. She was an amazing cook that she knew anything she saw she could replicate. And these girls would come to mum, ask for advice, and she was mentoring them. As soon as they left the house, they would not have a chance of an education, a chance of a future you know, get married at the young age, all of those stuff that you hear and you, you've you seen, you know, over the many years in different countries. Mum got frustrated and more frustration. And eventually she said, I simply want to stand up and talk about equality. And I remember the excitement and nervous of us going to the local school and mum standing up and and me looking at mum and being so proud of my mum. And she's talking to an audience of a, a good few hundred about equality a right, and women's rights and the same opportunity should be given to the, the, the girls and the boys and they should choose what the future look like and not others. And I was so proud of my mum I was saying um, my mum was a celebrity in my head at, at a young age. What I didn't realize is a, a Taliban would find out of that speech and an execution order was given for my mum. And in matter of days, We have to leave everything behind family, friends, belonging, belongings that we didn't own anymore because we sold everything Mm -hmm. from curtains, clothes, toys, anything they can think of to make some money, to go to human traffickers to say, look, we need to leave right now. And along that few days, my dad gets captured. He gets tortured um, while they're trying to find out where our mum is. And let's not forget our back to all of this. My older brother, Hussein. By that time, in the year 2000, he's had two operations. One at six months old, one at six years old, and they've told him, look, for you to save your son, my brother, you need to go to two places that could probably provide that help, that is US or UK. So we knew we had to leave, but not in a manner that we did, not in the pace that we did and the emotions that we had to go through of me thinking, my mum might not see what tomorrow looks like. And my dad would really he come back after he was captured? That's the reality of our of our journey into the word refugee, and I was being embarking off that um, year and a half journey to get to UK.
0: Mm. And so your mum uh, and dad decide to uh, contact these uh, traffickers, and then you begin a journey that takes you how long to get to the UK?
1: Almost a year and a half. Wow. Um, It started from hidden compartments in back of a uh, car with tinted windows, and these are people you don't want to go. They're human traffickers, are the people you don't want to approach because you also know what happens in in that journey and how you could be exploited. The next time I pop my head out of the car with a few breaks in between, and this is a few days later, we're in Moscow, Russia. and this is my first time out of my home city uh, Herat country Afghanistan in a country um, language weather that I've never you know been been exposed to and that's me the 10 year old 10 year old child and um, walking out this snow and different cars and different languages and people much taller uh, and different color skin so it was a it was a Bizarre experience, my first time out of the out of the country for myself.
0: Mm. And so, did you um, on that journey? That we hear a lot of people obviously arrive at Calais and have to make the crossover at Calais, which recently, of course, has been the site of a a really major tragedy. You know, at least twenty seven people drowned. Some say more than that, maybe even thirty one. Was that a crossing that you and your family also had to make?
1: So if I fast forward, um, the journey and we're talking countless countries, we're talking jungles, we're talking, um, getting robbed in Mo- yeah, yeah. So, so essentially if I would give you a quick run through of the journey, we go from Moscow, Yeah. Moscow six months, uh, after Moscow, we were told, okay, now is the next stage and back of a four by four, uh, and got dropped off in the middle of nowhere, uh, in the middle of a jungle and it was the border between uh Russia and Ukraine and what they do they take you through the you know thick bushes of the jungle to get across the border and your your life is on the hands of these strangers with machetes cutting through a path that doesn't exist to get you across and along that journey with other families I met a a girl called Zara, and I'll never forget this, we were talking, uh, you know, me being a 10 year old kid, and I think she was a few years younger, and she was saying, oh yeah, and I was asking about her siblings, and she said, oh, I've got an older sister, and I was like, where is she? And then she goes on to explain that her sister got lost along the journey, and I said, well how can you lose, you know, your, your sister? And she didn't didn't go on to explain that traffickers separated her older sister with a family, um, which then obviously later on, I find out that's how sex trafficking kind of happens is, you know, they, they um, you you know, they exploit families in the lowest points uh, and do what they do, which is um, unspeakable. Oh um, and the, the dad had a choice to allow that happen or they would take her younger daughter and her wife uh, and just leave them middle of Nova. So I had the realization at that, and this is me at the 10-year-old age. I had the realisation at that moment that I'm so glad I haven't got a sister. And as horrible that sounds, I remember my mum saying, I wish I, you know, I had a daughter. And I always wanted someone who was all, I always wanted the older sister so I can go to her, and not to my mum when I was in trouble. And at that moment, I was like, wow! How would I how would I process if that happens to my family? So that's the kind of levels of risk families have to take to make this journey. Um, we then across the jungle into Ukraine. We stay in a, a barn uh, for a few days. They give us some cheese and stale bread to as food. Um, we then go on to different hidden compartments in a car and eventually. We get to an apartment or a, or a flat, if you want to call it. And from there, we make the, we make the biggest leap into Austria, um, where my first time I'll go into a plane with fake passports that the trafficker kind of gave us. Uh, Austria was my first city. Country that I felt safe. I felt like a normal kid that I can play football in, in a normal grass. But we knew we had to get to UK because of my older brother and obviously what we were told. So, Austria became uh, Austria, Holland, um, Austria, sorry, Germany, uh, Holland, Germany, we got robbed at the gunpoint um, by the human trafficker. So any money that we had was taken away. And then I remember we, we worked in a pizza takeaway shop for a few weeks in Germany. And I make this reference all the time. I say, who loves pizza? And everyone put their hand up. And I said, well, trust me, you don't after your breakfast your lunch and dinner is pizza for three weeks every day. And I had that. Um, Wow. From Germany to um, Belgium and then Belgium, an attempt to get to UK, we got caught in France. We had friends attempt one, if I can word it that way. And the best way I can describe it is we went on a, a, a pathway, uh, and you could see the the the, the rails uh, where the train was going to be. And the plan was: that there's a bit that train slows down. We're just going to jump on the train. It sounds like those movie scenes that you see where the train's going really slow, but that's physically what we were going to do. Uh, and then it was going to go, obviously, you know, um, under the tunnel and into UK. Luckily, or unluckily, in my opinion, luckily, we got caught by the police, but chucked back in the Calais camp. And then we tried again, but this time uh, was back at the lorry. So a day before we go on a lorry, um, and then the next morning or mid morning, the driver, not knowing what's what's happened, because they've obviously you know closed the, the sort of the, the doors and kind of made made it look like the lock actually isn't broken using glues etc. Who knows? Um, we got into UK from back of the lorry, and. And I'll never forget this we there was a few years ago where obviously some um unfortunate um people suffocated in, in the January yeah.
0: uh quite quite it was a large number I think it was a large number of Vietnamese uh people who were trying to get uh into the UK and in the back yeah. of a lorry and who, who suffocated I can't remember the exact number but it was yeah it was a large it was,
1: quite, it, was it was a large number and my my younger brother nearly suffocated uh, in, in the container, but luckily for us, it was it wasn't a metal container. It was it had a lining at the top. So um, my dad, after some throwing up, found some sort of a nail and poke a hole to actually for him to breathe. But that's how we got into UK. And um, after a year and a half on all those crazy journeys, we got into UK from back of the lorry with the driver being confused and angry and. Them really want really wanted to know um, and left us middle of, middle of a motorway. Mm.
0: Well, of course they get into a lot of trouble, don't they? As well, they they end up getting blamed if they are, you know, they're sort of the people that get caught in the middle, don't they? They get blamed by the authorities, and um, often they've got no knowledge of, of that happening. um That's, I mean, I'm I'm so horrified. I sh- I guess it's one of the things that you don't realize about the journey that people go on is the 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 day-to-day hardship of that journey um, and the horrors that you encounter along the way I mean who are the traffickers who are these people I mean and how did you you know because there's something about the horror of everyday people's abilities to do horrific things and we've seen it throughout history right but you know these are these normal people just who lose all sense of um humanity or how or they you know they're all professional mafiosos or what what are we talking about
1: um good question uh the best way I can describe it and is my theory I guess the way we found them is my uncle knew someone else and they knew the human traffickers that can get us out of Afghanistan. And, what, and initially what you do is you tell them that, that, that contact that I want to go into UK. And there is a network of people along the way that you kind of get passed on to, which is why they can decide to, anyway in that chain that I'm going to exploit this and I'm going to take your money and I'm going to rob you at the gunpoint and I'm going to leave you here in the middle of nowhere. Um, there was a there was a trafficker in in france the first failed attempt the same trafficker came back the next day and said look i want to take you a different route and i'm not going to charge for it which isn't really something you'd associate with a trafficker because obviously so, the assumption is all they do is exploit but I, there was there was something odd and i'll see many years later reflecting quite jarring that a human trafficker who exploits you takes you fails and rather than saying I'll take you again and I'll charge you saying I'll take you again a better route and I won't charge you because I know you didn't get across in my personal opinion I feel I feel like he had a moment where he saw my older brother Hussein needing the medical help that he needed you know the state that he was in and that kind of I don't know made him really think it, it is purpose now to your original question I think and I don't know I think a human trafficker journey starts with someone who wants to help people from their own country to get out to safety Mm. that's my opinion and somewhere along the way in that timeline and I don't know what that is I feel like they lose touch with the original purpose that they started which is helping people get across and then you're right that grows to actually uh, this could be a, a, a business model which sounds really bizarre for me to say it um and then I think the more you 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 do it, you become more desensitized of what's going on, and then the exploitation comes in. And I think you, I think at a stage that you just lose touch with humanity of and where the line, where you draw the line. That's my opinion, but who knows? Um, I think for me, and I use the quote somewhere else, is the people you want to approach where you don't want to approach because the traffickers, for me and Afghanistan, were the right people to get us out to safety, but the right people you want to reach out to because as you said there are also the 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 mafia and there's a connection and a network and it's very organized uh people that do this so it's a hard one to answer and that's but that's my opinion
0: Mm. And so when you get to the UK, uh, presumably, you uh, were you were uh, was your family arrested? I mean, how did, how did it work as soon as the bus driver, sorry, the, the lorry driver sort of drops you on the side of the motorway? You know, where, where do you even go from there?
1: So my first experience in UK lands is we knew UK is right-hand drive. And so we were like, oh, I think we're in UK because all the drivers in, in the motorway is right-hand drive. And um, we were in a lorry for a day and a bit, almost. So the first thing that we then, uh, or the, the boys and dad, is we needed to go for a wee and we're on the side of the motorway where a junction kind of joins in. There's a patch of grass. We make a circle where my first experience of UK is weeing in the middle of a motorway and me being a child and I'm like, Dad, look, these are really people because it all beeping and I was waving back while well, I was ah. um, releasing myself in the middle of the motorway and I was like that looked really friendly but obviously now many years later I realized because we were doing something you shouldn't do in the middle of the motorway and um, that was my first experience being a child and waving back at people because they were beeping um we the same trafficker um took us to a a restaurant someone's burger king to have some food because we haven't eaten and then we've kind of stumbled our way into a we looked for a, a police station essentially and just said that you know we're refugees um and that journey started by us being chucked in a cell all of us um we fall asleep they bring us some food dad finishes all the food we don't even realize we wake up and there's just empty trays oh god and i say i said to dad what are these? And that's like, I don't know, they're just empty trays. Obviously, you know, he didn't admit that he's just munched our food. Um uh, and then is the processing, uh, you know, why are you here, getting the translator? Uh we were transported from whatever we were that city, I'm guessing um somewhere by the sea, to a city called Margot in Kent, yeah. very close by the sea. And we were there for a few weeks before they said. Uh, we've decided where you're going to go and this is a city and it's going to be called Cardiff and that was I guess my my journey into where I'm based at the moment.
0: And Cardiff became home?
1: Cardiff became home yeah um, i never forget It was a group of us and um, I think Wales was just opening its borders or they were the first refugee or something like that but the first official refugee or whatever they called it. Um, we went to a, a, a complex of, of, of apartments in Essence, um, and it was these volunteers, um, all smiling to greet us. And let's not forget this is the same. So a ten year old Hamid, now virgin, obviously, on, on, on 11 and a bit. Gone through this journey where his own people, in essence, have betrayed him, his family, and they wanted to kill his mum. And people along the way exploited, took advantage, took the money, and gunpoint, etc. Um, so it was slightly a surreal experience that I see another set of strangers, and they're smiling, and they 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 seem you know warm and welcoming. Um, but what I didn't realise is the impact that journey had on me, which kind of unfolded in the next few years. How, I'm guessing you want to know what that is.
0: Well, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing that you would have been living with some level of post-traumatic stress. Um, all of you, I would imagine, as a family, but obviously as a small child that may have manifested in different ways. And. How, yeah, how how would you describe, I guess, the impact that that has? Because I think maybe there's also this perception that once, um, you know, refugees arrive, and um, maybe there's a bit more tolerance for children. I don't know. You can tell me, but I think particularly for adults, there's this perception of like, you're here now, you know, adapt to the norms. You know, this is how we do things here, and forgetting that, you know, people have lived through things that most of us may not even be able to imagine in our wildest nightmares um so how how did you cope with the aftermath
1: um how would i describe it so for me i remember this very vividly i lost faith in humanity essentially um the first time it hit me was I go to school, year eight, so I'm about, you know, 12 now when, they, when the term started and there's no mum and dad. There's no younger brother. There's my older brother, Obviously, in a different class. And I go into a class and I have these total strangers in my head that are trying to uh, talk to me in a language that I don't understand. Let's not forget I couldn't speak English. So in my head, Different environments, different people, different culture, different weather, uh, losing faith in humanity. And I have a stranger who in my head, they were saying, I don't know, how are you? And in my head, I was like, what is your agenda? Why are you asking me this? Because last time along that journey, when someone was being nice and they were taking me across a the border, they actually stopped and pointed out to give me all your money. When someone in Russia, uh, and it's in the book, someone in Russia gave me a, 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 a in my head, a nice, you know, an old old guy was offering me and my brothers are some sweets and some candies in in the market. turned out to be a ploy for someone to um, take my mum's um, handbag or bag, if you want to call it. So about all of those experiences, and I have this total stranger, different colour, um, different language, telling me how are you, and in my head the translation is, you know what are you what is your agenda so for the next few years in school I was very defensive my garb was completely up I never trusted anyone I got in a lot of trouble and it got to a stage where I said to myself there's two ways this could go I could either let the world past me or I just tackle it head-on very aggressively I choose the latter Probably a bit too aggressively, which got me into trouble. You know, for fighting and having you know the um, wrong people around me. Um, and call a fate, call of, a a chance. I mean, I failed my GCSEs, I failed my A levels, and it's it's in public domain in essence. For A levels, I picked business, biology, and physics, and I had you, you, and you. I must have just not turn up to the exam. Now I'm not blaming my my language or my experience, etc. But in that journey where you don't associate any value to yourself, but this, you're an you're a object that needs to be taken from here to there, and these traffickers take advantage of you. And my only goal and aspiration, in essence, was for us to get to safety out of Afghanistan and then for us to get to UK for my brother to get what he needs from, 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 my, from a medical perspective. I had no aspiration i had no goal my goal was achieved and obviously then the nuance of the journey has an impact on if i can't even speak english and i'm not even from here how can i go on and have a i don't know a degree a job a career so that has an impact on how much you you drive you and then your driver kind of changed you know for, for me the drive was you know, well, I'll just play football and because that's, you know, et etc. et cetera. That's as far as I'm going to go. So all of those had an impact. I mean, they're on me. I'm not blaming um, society, teachers, etc. They're on me, or maybe they shouldn't be here, but in my head, they're on me. That's why I have no aspirations and that's why I failed my A-levels. Um, and that's where the fate comes in. Because while I was doing all of those, Usain was getting seen by different doctors, different uh, consultants and the way the, the doctors and the nurses and the consultants in the NHS, um, which is National Health Services in in UK, um, they treated him and to me they loved him as much as I did, the way they just wanted to make sure he's okay. So mm. that started for me to, that kind of broke, you know, the the, the, the wall that I had or put a crack in it.
0: Amazing. Uh,
1: and the more I saw it, the more that had an impact.
0: Yeah. So it was the, the care that you saw brought by these medical professionals to your brother, which sort of allowed you to believe that people could care without having gender, right?
1: 100%. 100%. That's-
0: And that and that was a major personal breakthrough for you, which I guess altered the the course of your life in many ways.
1: A hundred percent. And this is where this is where I guess fate intertwined. So I'm in a consultant's room with my older brother. This is year 2006 now or 2005. So I failed my A-levels. And in my head, I want to reset my A-levels or my A-S to be specific. Mm-hmm. where I don't want to reset because this bad boy image that I've created can go to people saying I've failed, you know, I'm going to reset. So I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. I avoided, it, you know, my, my friends because they wanted to ask the question, how did your exams go? I sit in a consultant's room in Southampton. Or a doctor called doctor, Dr. Doctor Hall, H-A-W, or Hal. I don't know how to pronounce his name specifically. And he's there talking to me and Hussein about an operation that he needs. So he's just going through the numbers. He's like, this is what we've got to do. This is what we've got to do. Um, and then he goes on to say, Hussein, you'd be the 21st person to ever have that operation. Wow. You'd be the youngest person to ever have the operation. And there are two places in the world that does this operation called Fontan conversion. And that is Southampton, UK, Chicago, US. And I had a moment that, oh wow, many, many years ago, what they told us was actually true. That this is a wow. case that they could
0: do it. He'd had a co- correct diagnosis then back in Afghanistan. Yes. Yeah. The medical professionals there. Yeah.
1: So I'm sitting there, and then he talks about the success rate is 60%. The operation is between 12 to 14 hours. Wow. And my brother is there, who's saying at the age of, I want to say 20. He's smiling. He's like, okay, where do I sign? And I'm like, you do understand what he just said, the complexity and et cetera. And let's not forget, he. He could have avoided having the operation and be on the medication. uh, It will just deteriorate his liver, his eyesight, his skin, uh, uh, because he was a very strong medication, or you take an operation at that age, but the risk of. Potentially not coming back from it, it's it's such a rare operation to do and complex. And he was then turned on to me and said, yeah, yeah, I understand what he said to me, but I want to finish i want to do the operation i'll come out of the side i want to finish my degree i want to uh, start up my own business but i want to come back to nhs and help nhs oh. and uh i just want to i just want to i just want to give it all and that's when it hit me mm. that i've been complaining about everything culture weather people language Hussein had all the same challenges
0: and more but then
1: he had a he had a a ticking, uh, you know, um, heart failure in his heart, in in his chest. And he can see past all of that. And all he wants to do is just get on with his life and make a difference. So he went on to have a success operation, which was 14 and a half hours. I'll never forget this. And as soon as I was done and he made, he, he, he was in university. I call it fate again or luck. He managed to get me into a foundation degree in a computer science in, in a local university in South Wales in, in UK. And that's that's when the my my way of thinking changed after witnessing my brother and I said, well I've I've just been complaining about everything. But my older brother who's my role model, my best friend, can can see past that. So as soon as I got into university, my view was do as much as i can to give as much as i uh, you know i can possibly d- do and walk away from it knowing i've given it all mm. um but also there was an element of knowing i can't let my brother down because he's the one who got me to university
0: yeah and um and your brother so had a uh is it a rare is it a congenital heart,
1: congenital heart disease yeah,
0: disease a, yeah. And um, so he was sick for most of his life, presumably. He was
1: born with it. He was born with a congenital heart disease, and um, essentially, in in Southampton, they installed a the pacemaker. They took half half of his atrium out, which is the right side of the the top sort of out. Gore Tex pipe maze. Um, he was a case study after just because he was so complex and the stuff that were they've done on if the they've never done before because of his age factor.
0: Mm. And so he managed to um, go on to live many more years after the operation healthily?
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He went on to get his degree. He went on. So what he said, he exactly did that. He went on to get his degree. He created a company with his best friend in IT. Wow. So he, he went on to do IT network, security management, etc sort of a mouthful, but IT in essence, and um, he actually became a, a governor for NHS in South Wales. He became a governor for NHS in Bristol, and that's what he was doing. He he, he went on to get a degree, get a job, created a business, but also went back to give back to the, the, the NHS, the people that saved his life.
0: Yeah. And so tell me a little bit about your um, perception of the UK. I mean, did you have a sense of what the UK was before you arrived here? And how different did that turn out to be compared to the reality? And I'm sure there were several realities, right? Presumably, there's the reality of the lorry driver that you meet at the pl- in the police station, there's a reality presumably of the NHS workers who are yeah. a different face of Britain, right?
1: You, I think you always have this pre-perception of UK, especially when you're back home. So there's a phrase they, they say, oh yeah, there's literally many in the streets of UK. So if you go there, you're fine. Uh, you know, there's, there's tons of work, everyone. It's, it's a very utopia um, perception of UK. Now, you do get a reality check because there are a lot of, and, and I've met amazing people along my journey, along my life. But the bit that you know don't get told is, and I had the first time experience, and I didn't know what it was, and I started to put a label on it, you know, racial profiling, and you don't belong here, and all that stuff. It happened to me on God knows how many occasions. Um, that's the bit that you don't get told, and I'm. It, I think there's an analogy somewhere that I'm not going to tell you that my food is bad. I'm, I'm going to say my food's amazing. So no one's going to, you know, say, oh, UK is actually, you know, everything. Everyone's got flaws, but no one's going to. It's hard to, to admit to your flaws. So then it's that perception uh, created when you're in it, like I was, and um, and you witness um, the way you're perceived, the way you're seen, the way there's a differentiation. On it, on how you you know how you've been treated, it, it does put into perspective. It gives you, I think, for for me, um, I was very fortunate that I had the resilience from that journey. That I was like, I'm not gonna let this impact me, but it does impact you. No matter how thick-skinned you are, it has an impact on you. um And what I didn't know, that impact hit me when I went to my professional environment setup, which I've talked about openly on, the, on different platforms. Um,
0: and ha- in what way?
1: So I think when you're younger, you know about it, you witness it, you're in it, you get called names essentially, and you're you're that arrogant sort of, you know, or well, I was that arrogant, stubborn kid that says, you know, you respond back, you know, unprofessionally and swear back, etcetera again to fight. So
0: but you this is you receiving racist abuse, is that Yeah, what you're yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: so, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I used to play football on a Saturday and the you know, um they were colored people in, in, in my team, including myself, and you'd hear monkey noises and whatever. And that was, in essence, it was normal, but it shouldn't be, you know, it, and you this know, is, it was.
0: This is what, 10, 10, 15 years ago? Yeah,
1: yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and I got to my first job, so I got my degree in computer science. Um, I, I was amazed that was my new pinnacle of achievement ever, me getting a degree because I never imagined I'd oh, get that nice. um, I go into my first professional environment. I'm still as driven as I was when I went into my university. And then it kind of hit me without me realising. So every time I walked in through the door, I was worried how I'm being perceived. I was worried about what people think about my religion, my name, what I represent, um, and you'd, you'd hear a conversation, you know, um, a horrible act of uh, a terrorism act happens somewhere, and you'd hear murmurs, oh yeah, you know, it's obviously media doesn't help about, you know, Muslims and all of this stuff, and I'm like, oh, that's me, you know, you're describing my religion that doesn't actually promote any of this stuff that you, you know, has been, you know, you hear in the media. And, and actually, in, 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 in our religion, it talks about, you know, um, everyone is in the same page. You shouldn't judge someone else. And, you know, you should actually do good. You know, love your neighbor and look out and respect your elders, all this stuff. So the impact they had on me is every day I would walk in and 20% of my brain capacity, if I can describe it that way was worried about how I'm being perceived, Uh, Mm. my name, the way I walk, the way I talk, all of those impacts. And that Mm. went on for a few years. So for a few years, I've been held back because of my experience, because of what I've gone through, because of what I witnessed and, you know, people labeling me, you know, in in younger sort of, I guess, days, that it, it kind of trickled into my professional environment. And the problem is how would I who would I go to in a professional environment? And I say, by the way, guys, I'm um, I'm feeling insecure about how I've been perceived. And, and, and then I look around and everyone else is white. So who can I go to and explain what I'm going through? Because they're going to go, I don't even know what you mean. Are you just, yeah. are you having a bad day? So yeah, that went on for for three, four years.
0: Mm. Yeah, and did did you f- find that um your I mean if you were going to describe the perception of you um was would you say that was mostly uh, uh a, a negative perception rooted in or was was that negative perception kind of your experience of how, how people were treating you is that is that how it was coming about were you were you sensing or it was these conversations you were overhearing Yeah, I guess what I'm I, what I'm slightly getting at is um that for me one aspect of whiteness is this kind of hierarchy of human value that it creates, right, the idea that there's sort of, um, you know, the the pinnacle of which is usually sort of, you know, a secular white male perspective is, you know, the height of um, human evolution, as it were, and everyone else sort of has to justify themselves to that standard. Um, and, and of course, that manifests in in the value that we attribute to different lives, right? The the the, the importance of uh, one missing child, you know, that we're looking for, and, and rightly so, right? Madeline McCann, it's, it's a huge tragedy, and we should be keep keep trying to find this poor little girl. But there are little tr- girls like the one you've just described, and I wonder whether anyone even knows, apart from her family, that she's missing, you know um and I do sometimes wonder the extent to which for me I I interpret that as a facet of whiteness um I I I I, I'm yeah keen keen to hear what what you think about that and how you have sort of interpreted the way that you are um I guess judged or feel that people are judging you
1: um Where do I start? So (laughs) I think let's start at the beginning. I think what I went through in my early professional life was self manifestation, but caused by factors around me from the people, the way people behave me, the way people treated me, the way people labeled me, the way media created the perception of Muslims, refugees, people understand. And let's not forget, I was. Um, i was in the uk uh april 2001 and then 9 11 happened
0: you oh, know wow. september
1: that year later and i could just see the shift on on the on the way from afghanistan i had someone in my first christmas party experience in uk right you have with christmas do you know we call it in uk i've never been um so i went in there and Obviously, I don't drink, but everyone else around me do. And this person was slightly drunk, and he's like, "So, um, did you know Osama Bin Laden?" I was like, "Excuse me, you know, Osama, do, you, do you know Osama Bin Laden?" I was like, "Why would you say, Well, he's Afghanistan, so I'm guessing you know you've, you've seen him." I was like, "No, I I, you know, I wow. don't think I don't think he's originally from Afghanistan. That's beside the point." And then he goes on to say, "So." you believe if if you kill white people you go to heaven
0: oh wow
1: and i was like uh n- no otherwise i wouldn't be in living with you guys you know yeah I, I didn't even know how to process that so when you hear stuff like that now i'm not going to blame him he was drunk uh, you know um, ignorant etc i'm not too fussed when you hear stuff like that he has an impact so that's the self manifestation that comes in but the mm-hmm. facts around it and yeah. As I grow in my journey, so I tell you when he stopped, when I stopped caring, in essence. So four <laughs> years into my four years into my career, uh, I have a new director um, comes in, uh, a lady called Sam Toomes. Um, we are just having a conversation. She pulled me in a room, um, very very senior, and she's like, "Look, I don't care where you're from. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've gone through. I think you've got real potential, but you need to sell. You need know, to believe in yourself and stop caring about what people think about you know." Your, your background, because you will go on and you you will be yours, you special, trust me, I'm telling you this, I can see this in you, there's something about you. That's all it took. Mm. Now, there was a, there was a, so she, she, she was a minority, in essence, she was white, but she was a uh, lesbian. So you don't get many of that people actually in IT. So she could relate from a minority perspective. Right. That, you know i'm from a i'm from a, a minority background uh, yeah. a label that people see as taboo people wouldn't want us people would say it and female come on and they don't see the fact that you know uh, my partner is female all of that stuff so i don't know how she saw that so i walk out and then i self-reflect and i say Do you know what i'm gonna try this so now i have the motto many years later every time i walk through a door i've accepted and I'm okay with it. There'll be someone who won't like the way I walk, the way I talk, the way I laugh, the way I am, who I am, my name, and I don't care because I need to be comfortable on my own skin. Yeah. And it allowed me to drop that 20%, 30% of my mind worrying about what people think about me because now I'm just being myself. And that took me, and you talked the question you asked earlier, you know, the, the integration into the society, it took me several years to come to that conclusion, that that moment, the crossroad to say, actually, I belong. This is me. I'm Hamid. You either like me or you don't. Mm-hmm. I'm going to respect you. Um, but this is me. And if you have opinions, that's your opinions. I don't I don't care. And if you have views that are non relevant to my core values and what my religion's taught me, that's up to you. i let you I'll let you be you. I'm going to go the path that I know has been set to me by the framework of, of our religion and I'll see where that takes me and where that takes you. That's that's how I've changed course I guess.
0: Does Britishness have space for uh, Hamid Amiri's identity within it?
1: I think so yeah you know if someone said to me where you're from I'd say I'm from Afghanistan but obviously I've got a Welsh accent and you know I've been here for 21 years and my culture is a combination of both of you know growing up in this environment and uh also having my core values of my religion you know so it's a, it's a' it's, it's a it's a version of you know a culture vision that i've i've created and I think the first generations that come into this uh, to this to this country especially young age you have this loss of identity and I've been in different conversations that if I go to, in, in, in our community, I dial down, you know, how I how I interact with people because they wouldn't be able to associate on, on some of the, you know, Western, uh, you know, culture. If I'm a Western, Western uh, culture with people, I dial down some of the stuff. It's, it's just, and then you kind of lose yourself. But then I think for me, I've gone on this journey and I've done so much sort of reflection and analysed who I am. And as you said, I'm me, which is a combination of, my mum and dad values and what they taught me, my older brother, how he represented himself and how he, you know, how he lived his life. What I witnessed with people, how they treated him and loved him as much as I did. But also me me realising, I've got a responsibility, how I conduct myself because people after me, people around me can say, he's gone on that journey. He's done that. Then I should take a page from his, journey and apply it to my journey and make my life easier and that's kind of I guess where I am bizarrely as we speak right now and I don't know what tomorrow looks like but I don't care because I'm living it I'm living in the moment and I'm just grateful.
0: Thank you so much Hamid that was um, that was amazing um I now want to take you to the quick fire round if that's okay so quick fire round is when I ask you very short questions and we're looking for short answers so Here we go, what is your definition of whiteness?
1: Ooh, short answer, definition of whiteness, I think is a label um, that's been created um, in association of where we are, so in the Western society, and um, people making people making association that, that drives success, that drives elitist, that drives what, what should be defined. And I guess for me, is how do you counteract that and say everyone's equal? I don't care what my line is. I don't care who you are, where you're from, your religion, culture, background, ethnicity, we're all the same, equal. Uh, And that's what I drive to. Short answer.
0: What is the root of racism?
1: Lack of education. Ignorance (laughs) and jealousy.
0: Interesting. Um, What is the opposite of whiteness?
1: Equal opportunity and hashtag no labels.
0: Is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your view and is that universalist ideal ever achievable or even desirable?
1: Now you're asking (laughs) I would love to say it's desirable but at the same time the, the 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 subconscious bias the 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 way we see people and label them based on the color and ethnicity I think it's unfortunately it's so embedded in some people's view and 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 sort of core core values that I'm greater than you are that I I think it's desirable and I what I had to say it probably not achievable in the next 10, 15, 20 years.
0: Is whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism? Yes. Because it allows
1: you to open it allows you to open a conversation and, <laughs> and talk about it on equal terms.
0: Thank you so much for your time, Hamid. Uh, Amiri, if people want to connect with your work, your ideas, where should they go?
1: Ooh, good question. So, uh, social media is probably the best way. So, uh, Twitter, Instagram, if you just put Hamid Amiri, um, and maybe we'll put on the link when you, when you publish, publish this, uh, this episode, um, LinkedIn, not Facebook, please. But yeah, Instagram, Twitter, uh, you know, LinkedIn, please reach out to me. Uh, and if you want to really know about the full journey about the boy with two hearts and what does that represent Go check out in Amazon. Uh again, just go just put it should have a really cool picture with a title which looks kind of like this. Oh um, fantastic.
0: The boy with two so,
1: hats Yeah, go go get it because that literally gives you an insight off of my crazy journey. And and to be fair, the tagline says story of hope. So um it has got a very um emotional ending but you walk away feeling uh, feeling refreshed and wanna reevaluate re- how you perceive life and, uh, you know, loved ones.
0: Okay, well, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I wanna thank you for giving us your time today. Uh, I also wanna thank all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please do subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or SoundCloud. And join us next time for more conversations on whiteness. Thank you so much.